Thank you. Good morning. Good morning, everybody. Oh, man, so excited to be here. Uh, man, love, love the songs. Love that uh, song, Oh God, that's going to tie in so perfect with today's message. Love seeing that you guys support uh, Chris and his family. Uh, you, you heard they're out of Faith Ridge. We, too, we are partnering with Faith Ridge. We've just made the transition from another church to there. And, man, we're so excited to be up here and uh, just to partner with them and with you guys and the BCNE North American Mission Board to help uh, push back the darkness and reach the lost with the good news of the gospel. So, uh, as I said, I'm, I'm a church planter. My name's Aaron Cockrum. Uh, we've come up here from Kansas City on the Missouri side. So, yes, we do like the Chiefs, and yes, we do know how to do barbecue. Uh, that's what we've got down there. It's about all we have, that and lots of open field and cattle. So, uh, my family is here with me today. I have my wife, Linda. We've been married for 15 years. Uh, she is so far above my pay grade. Please don't tell her otherwise. Uh, we're here by the grace of God. We're still married. To, you know, she's putting up with me this long. I have my oldest son. He just turned 14 yesterday. His name is Everett. Uh, he's going on 27 at the rate he is eating and growing. My middle son, Samuel, he's right here. He's a blessing, has a heart like no other person I've ever met. Uh, don't cry around him because he'll cry just because he feels your pain. He doesn't know why. And then Alexander, our youngest right here, uh, he's not shy by any means, as you can see. Uh, he's our little evangel evangelist, get the word out. but he doesn't know it yet. But that boy, he loves to share the gospel, he loves to pray, so man, we're excited to see what God's going to do with him. So we moved up here back in August. Uh, God has blessed us with, oh, there everybody is. Uh, man, look at that. I can see all your beautiful faces. So God, uh, he provided us with an amazing home and hooks it. As we've answered this call, like I said, to come out of Kansas City, uh, to come up here and to try to share the hope that God has placed in, in, in my life and on my heart and this, the good news of the gospel. So <clears throat> one thing that we love up here is, I, for me at least, I love the history. I love anything that has to do with history. And New England is just full of amazing amounts of history, both on the secular side and on the, the Christianity and the great awakenings and everything that took place up here. And so I'm always looking. I'm looking for, for new, new things that, you know, history-wise that you don't hear about in normal school teachings. Because we hear about, you know, the birth of the nation, and we hear about the birth of Christianity and everything it took on. But there's so much more that has happened. And one thing that I came across here a while back was it was about a submarine that actually sank uh, off uh, the coast of Massachusetts about 100 years ago uh, in Cape Cod Bay. The submarine had collided with a Coast Guard ship and sank down in the icy waters. And, of course, back then... You know, the rescue efforts, efforts, you know, back around 1927 aren't what they are today. And so these men that are going out there, they don't even know if there's anybody alive on this ship. And so they go out there, and as the first diver goes down and he lands on the ship, he feels tapping. He feels this somebody rapping on the side of it, and he realizes soon that it's Morse code. And of the 40 men that had been on that ship, they come to find out that there were six that were still alive. They had found themselves into a little air pocket up in the front torpedo bay, or whatever they call it. Anyway... They're up there, and they're running out of time. They, they realize the people up above, they realize that the batteries are mixing with the water, producing noxious gas. They've got a small pocket of air, six guys. They're going to carbon dioxide or some other gas is going to knock them out before too long. And so they're trying everything to try and rescue these guys. They, they go down, and as I'm reading about this, they go down and they try to, to insert hoses in to, to raise the ballast tanks, but it doesn't work. And, and this is frigid, frigid winter, winter water. So, I mean, you know how the water, water up here never gets warm. We found that out. We've been down to the Gulf. Thank you. Hey, it's ocean. No, this, it's cold water. Middle of summer, it's still freezing. But they're, they're trying to figure out how they're going to save these guys. They try to pump uh, air into them, but they can't get air into where they're at without water coming in. And they realize that time's running out. They, they figured about 48 hours. 
And as this time is dwindling, the last message that the men inside actually tapped out in Morse code was they asked, is there hope? And the response that they got back is, there is hope. But unfortunately, they didn't get to them in time. Uh, actually, it took four months for them to, to get the men out and to raise the sub up. And so nobody survived, but they didn't die in vain because the, the Navy has taken that sub and they brought it up, they rehabbed it, refurbished it, and they went and actually sank it off the coast of Florida. And they have used it to develop all these different methods to try and to rescue men, and they've come up with diving bells and all these other ways. So if something like this happens, they can provide hope to somebody who's down there, and they can rescue them. Hope, it's the one thing that, that we're told that we have to hold on to, that when life feels overwhelming, everybody says, hold on to hope. Well, what does that mean? How do we know, hold on to hope in a world that, honestly, it often seems hopeless, it feels hopeless? <clears throat> As I reflected on these rescuers, I'm thinking back to what's going on, you know, and they're trapped, and the guys up above, they're trying to rescue them. I realized the one thing that they had in common was they both had hope. They, is there hope? Yes, there's hope. Even when it was dwindling, there was hope for rescue, hope that these men would see another day, hope that they would get to see their families again. And everywhere we look now in our own lives, we see people searching for hope. I think of the friend who's struggling, struggling in life, who doesn't have a job, and he's, he's worried about how he's going to feed his family this week. Or the neighbor down the street who has a loved one that is, is suffering with cancer, and they're fighting for their life, and they're looking for the hope that will get them through that. I think of the child who has got lost in the system, and they're just looking for someone to love them like they were their own child. Or even right now, we can see in the Ukraine, the war that's going on, the people over there that are searching for hope as this Russian invasion has come in. There was one picture that's been circulating that's really weighed on me as I've been trying to, to pray over the people that are over there and, and, and the suffering that's going on. And it's hundreds of people, they're in this abandoned subway underground and they're sleeping down there because they're trying to avoid the bombing that's going on in the city. They're looking for hope. They're looking for something that is better than their present life to grasp onto and to help drag them through this darkness. People need hope. And that's what the gospel gives us. The gospel gives us hope. Because it provides strength for us to face insurmountable odds. And so today, we're going to be looking at another time in the Bible when things looked pretty hopeless. We're going to go back into the Old Testament. We're going to go into one of the minor prophets. So if you've got your Bibles, you can turn there and start getting prepared. We're going to go into the book of Haggai. Uh, it's a small book. Uh, it's only about two chapters long. It's easily missed. It sounds like it's a Muppet, but it's not. Uh, when we say it's a minor prophet, what we're saying, it's not that it's a lesser than. It's just because it is so much smaller than like Jeremiah and Daniel and Isaiah. Uh, it's trapped in between the two Z's of the Bible, uh, Zechariah and Zephaniah. We need more Z's in the world. There was lots of Z's back then. Uh, but Haggai, it deals with the rebuilding of the temple. This book is a book about rebuilding uh, God's temple there in Jerusalem. And I want to talk a little bit about why they were having to rebuild it. So we've got that baseline to, to build off of. So if we go back, we're going to go way back. We're going to go uh, into Exodus as God is bringing the people out of bondage. He's bringing his, his chosen people, Israelites, out of slavery, and he takes them into the wilderness. He starts providing them with these commandments and these directions to help set them apart from the, the surrounding nations because they were to be his chosen and holy people. And one of, the, uh, one of the commandments he gives them is 
to build the tabernacle. And he, he gives it in great detail. He leaves nothing to their imagination as to how he wants this built. And basically what it was, it was this large tent where God would come and dwell as they traveled. And when he would leave the tent and he would go up, they would fold it up and they would move along. And then they would set it back up and God would rest among them. And so they did that as they traveled along, uh, unfortunately, for 40 years because they were disobedient. And, uh, but as they traveled along, and then they made it into the Holy Land. And eventually they settled throughout it, and they established, uh, David established the capital, which is in Jerusalem. And when he was there, David decided that it was time to, to get rid of the tabernacle as, as the Israelites had a permanent home to provide one for the Lord. And God says, no, you're a man of war. You're not going to build the temple, but your son will. And so Solomon is actually who builds it. Solomon builds a temple. God dwells there for centuries. But unfortunately, uh, the people, they still continued to fail to uphold all that he had commanded them. They were disobedient. And eventually, God just has enough of it, and he hands them over in exile to the uh, Babylonians. And when he does, Nebuchadnezzar comes over, and he completely destroys the temple. So it is gone. And then 70 years later, God softens the heart of Darius, and they release them back, and the Israelites come back, and the first thing they do when they come back is they decide they want to build God's house back. They want to put back his place to dwell, but unfortunately, because men are involved, and we're all broken, and we fight and argue and wars, they stop, and it's about 16 years before they decide to, well, God decides it's time for them to start building it, and that's where we're going to come in here. We're going to come into Haggai, and in the first chapter, he, we, we see that God weighs on Haggai to go and tell the governor that it's time to start building this temple. It's been sitting there. It's time for you to move forward and build this house. The governor tells him, no, we're not going to do it. It's not time. And, and God, it's not good to tell God, no, I found that out myself. We told him, no, we really didn't want to go to the cold, and so here we are in New England. Uh, but God, he speaks to Haggai, and he, he talks to him, and he says in, in verse 4 of the first chapter, he says, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lays desolate? Basically, God is really condemning the governor, and he's saying, look, you've got your place. You took time to build yours, but you don't have time for me. You don't have time for the one who has led you out of exile and back to your home. And so he commands them to get up and go finish the temple. Get up and do what I've told you. And that's where we come to our passage today. So today we're going to be in, in Haggai 2, and we're going to read the first nine verses. And so starting in verse 1, it says, On the 21st of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Sheatael, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people, saying, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? But now take courage, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, Take courage also, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and all you people of the land. Take courage, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. As for the promise which I made when you came out of Egypt, my spirit is abiding in your midst. Do not fear. For thus says the Lord of hosts, once more in a little while, I am going to shake the heavens and the earth, the sea also and the dry land. I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all nations, and I will fill this house with glory, said the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of the house will be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. 
Well, the first thing we see in there is there's a whole lot of Lord of hosts. Haggai wants to make it perfectly clear that he's not speaking as himself. He is speaking for God. God is telling this to them because they need to understand where their strength lies. And God is speaking this to us too. And he provides three truths in this passage that I really wanted to, to, to hone in on and focus on and see how that applies in our lives. And the first truth that we see there is that our hope is not dictated by our past. Again, our hope is not dictated by our pasts. Because as we get into this and we start reading these first few verses, we begin to see a time frame. And we begin to see who God is speaking to as the people have gathered there. And not going into a lot of details. Again, we see it's, it's been about 16 years. But what we know is they're restarting to rebuild this effort. And we see gathered around the governor and the high priest and, and the, the remnant of the people and Haggai. And they're looking at this foundation laid out. I can, I can picture this block of foundations. And I don't think they're very impressed by it. You know, you, I see it this way. As they're standing around thinking, man, we're, we're going to build the house of God. We're going we're to bring God back in here. We're gonna, Yahweh's going to have his place. And they're getting excited to do it. Somewhere in the back, somebody's yelled out, hey, it's not as big as the other one was. Hey, it's not going to have as much nice stuff. They took all our things. There's some old guy in the back that he's just belly aching. And when I say old, I don't say that in a, in a derogatory way. I say it because it, it's just, it's been a long time. Remember, it's been at least 70 years since the temple was destroyed. So odds are anybody that was then alive is probably not. And those that are, they're, they're probably getting up there in age. I think back to myself, I can remember stuff to maybe five, maybe. Uh, it's usually not the good stuff I remember, but I can think back to five. So if that's the case, they're probably 70, 75 at the youngest. So their vision and their memory is probably not what it was. And, and God knows that. God hears them bellyaching about it, and he confronts them. It's right there in verse 3. Look at it again. He says, Who is left among you who saw the temple in its former glory? And how do you see it now? Does it not seem like nothing in comparison? God is speaking to him, and he's saying, You know what? You're right. This is not as good as the first one. But it's gone. And you forgot why it's gone. You have forgotten why this is gone. You're living in your past. And look, we all know people that are like that. We all know people who can't get past their glory days, who can't get past something that's happened in the past, and it just defines their life forever. I, for me, I, I, think of, I think of the sports player back in high school, whether it's the quarterback who threw the winning touchdown or, or the, the, the guy on the basketball team who hit the three-pointer right as the buzzer ended and they won the championship, and they, they live that for the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. That's all they have. They keep dwelling on that moment. And man, I, you get tired of hearing it. You can pretty much tell it them as they're going. But the problem is that our eyes have been clouded by time. And the further we go into our future, the less we remember the past how it was. We start seeing things in a different light. Now I'm going to date myself here a little bit. Uh, I, all this gray hair makes me look old. I'm really not that old. Uh, but back in 1999, there was a song that came out. It was real popular. Uh, it was called Everybody's Free. It was also called the Sunscreen Song. And this song, what it was, it was this gentleman, he was giving a commencement speech. It was actually a spoken word song. Uh, but he was giving a commencement speech to the graduating class of 99. And in it, he, he gives us some advice in life. Uh, basically, the main advice was wear sunscreen because it's been proven. Everything else is just, you know, kind of what he's experienced. 
But there's one verse in it that really speaks to this idea of how we see our past in, in a different light than, than how it truly is. I want you to listen to what he says. He says, prices will rise, politicians will philander, and you too will get old. And when you do, you'll fantasize that when you were young, prices were reasonable, politicians were noble, and children respected their elders. What changed? Man, I, I can tell you, prices, they weren't that good back then. My dad complained about gas in the 70s during the gas wars like he does now. And my grandfather, when it comes to politicians, he complained about them. I'm pretty sure it's the same ones he voted in 70 years ago. They're still here. They didn't change. It's us that changed. We are seeing things in a, different, in a different light than what it truly was, and we're forgetting the bad parts. We're trying to make it better. The problem that we have is not that it got better, but it's that we're trying to find our hope in the past. These men, in their rush to condemn this new foundation, condemn this, this temple that they were building, they had forgot why the old temple was gone. They forgot why it had been destroyed. They had drifted away from God. They had lived disobediently. They had fallen in with the pagan nations. They were not the people he called them to be, and he had had enough. And God handed them over in exile. God allowed the Babylonians to come in, and he handed them over and let the temple be destroyed. God is telling them, and he's telling us the same thing, that we cannot view the future through the rose-colored lens of time. It distorts everything. And honestly, I don't know about you guys, but my past is filled with more times of struggle and more times of pain and more times of hurt than I really want to recall. And so take note of this. The past is not as glorious as we remember, and we will not find our hope there. It's not as glorious. There's not the hope that we need lying in our past. There's pain and struggles. So considering that we cannot look to our past for hope, if we can't look back there and see it, so what does that say about right here, right now? Well, as we're going to see here, God, he, he knows what's going through their mind, what our mind, God is, is all-seeing, God is omnipotent. He knows what's going on, and he confronts our fears, and he speaks to us. And that brings us to this second truth of hope right there in that passage, and that it's our hope starts in God's presence in our presence. Our hope starts in God's presence right here in our present. As these Israelites are staying there and they're contemplating this truth of why the temple's destroyed, man, it's just like the light went off. It's like, wow, we weren't the people we were supposed to be. I'm sure they're getting fearful. I mean, think about it. They had just been handed over in exile. The temple of Yahweh, where God dwelled, was destroyed. The city of Jerusalem was gone. The, what was in the temple? Inside the temple was the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark that went out with them as they went to war, and they would win their battles because God was with them, and now it's gone too. Everything that they had had is gone, and maybe that meant God was gone too. Yeah, maybe they're wondering, is God even with us? I mean, he did, he did hand them over in exile, but God, he knows this. God knows what they're thinking, what's going through their hearts, and the fears they're having. And so he begins through Haggai to give them hope and to give them assurance that he was there with them. And that's why I love that song. I love that song because it talks about he is where there with them. Look, back in verses 4 and 5, he really gives them a, a strong word of encouragement. Three times in verse 4, he says, take now. And, or take courage now. He tells Zerubbabel and Joshua and the people, take courage. And he says, go to work, for I am with you. He says, be strong. 
don't worry about it. Go build the temple. Don't worry about your past. Just focus on the path that I've laid out in front of you. Man, how many times do we need to remind ourselves that we need to stop looking at our past and we need to start focusing on what God has planned for us? I know I have to do it on a constant basis. When we're going through these struggles in life, man, let's stop looking at our past because that's all been forgiven. And let's start looking to what he has before us. Now, God didn't just tell them, suck it up, buttercup, and go. No. No, he gave them assurance. He gave them what they needed. He gave them assurance that he was there, that he was their source of strength, even though the temple was not. They weren't going to do this on their own, and he hadn't forgot the promises that he had given to their forefathers. And I, I think about as they've come out, they just came out of exile, 70 years. It's, man, how does that echo so much with the Israelites, their forefathers that came out? You know, they were in exile for 400 years, but you know, a lifetime's a lifetime. And that, that, that worry, but he's promising them, don't worry about it. And as he brought those exiles out and brought them into Egypt, he made a promise to them. It's right there in Exodus 29. He says, I will dwell among the sons of Israel, and I will be their God. He's promising to them again, don't worry about this, that I'll be your strength. Look, it's hard to tell someone. I know, I know this. It's, it's, it's so difficult to tell someone when they're disheartened, when they're weak, when they're trembling because life is falling down around them to simply be strong, but we all do it. The problem is we need a reason to be strong that's beyond us. We need something to give us strength. And I'm sure we're all guilty. I know I am of saying to someone, hey, man, it's going to be okay and just leave it at that. But the problem is that at that moment, they have nothing to serve as their source of strength. So how can they begin to be strong? I think of my kids. I think of when they were little. It's not so much now, but when they were little, and they'd wake up with nightmares in the middle of the night. And they would scream out, or they would come running and jump into bed with me and their mother. They came to us out of the darkness because they were looking for strength in that moment. They were looking for something beyond themselves because there was nothing that was within them that was going to calm the fear that they had. They look to us for the strength to support them. And that's what God is telling the Israelites. Look to him. That's what God is telling us. Look to him. We are weak by ourselves. We are weak in our own power. And in times of crisis or fear, our first inclination is self-preservation. It always is. It's never to find strength. And God uses these times of fear and weakness to draw us to him and away from ourselves. Now, look, I'm going to share a little bit about my story uh, I'm going to make it quick, uh, but I think it's so pertinent to this. I would love, if anybody would like to talk more, I'd love to share my testimony and what God has done for me and my family. But uh, four years ago, about four and a half years ago, my wife asked me for a divorce after 10 years of marriage. Uh, I was not the husband that I was supposed to be. I was an absent husband who uh, was tied into my work and tied into video games. And so she wanted out, and I praise God that, uh, that he is a God who redeems and reconciles and that he worked through us in the church where we got saved, and he has brought us back stronger than we ever were. Uh, but at that time, I was struggling, because when she told me, I was an atheist. I'd been an atheist for 40 years of my life. And she tell you, she was a Christian, but in, in, in name only. She, she wasn't practicing. She didn't have that relationship with Christ. And so in that moment, when she's telling me this, and my world is falling apart as an atheist, I didn't have anything as a foundation to find strength in. Everybody would tell me, man, be strong, it will be okay. And I'd ask them, how? I, I had nothing to stand on but broken dreams and fear. I was losing everything. 
I was losing my family, losing my wife and my children. How can I be strong? Now fast forward to a year later, almost a year to the day of when she told me this, and I get a phone call at work that my house is on fire. And my wife and my kids are out, and I'm trying to rush home. I'm 30, 35 minutes away, and I'm going home. Am I worried? Am I scared about what's going to happen next? No. What was different? I knew God was with me. I knew God was with my family. And even though everything seemed to be falling down around us, he was there. I had faith. I had hope in the presence of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I was standing in his comfort. Look, we had a friend about two years ago in our sending church. They lost their 18-year-old son right around Christmas. Uh, he came down for breakfast, went upstairs, collapsed. He had a heart condition that nobody knew about. And as they took his son, and they took him in the ambulance, and they, he's there in the hospital, and his parents are, are waiting as these doctors are trying to unsuccessfully save the young man. His father, you know what his father's doing? His father is out in that emergency waiting room, and he is sharing the gospel with every person that's standing there. Do you know why he's doing it? Because he knew that God was with him, and God was with his son, and he found his strength in Christ. He was standing in the presence of his Lord. God wants us to be present with him. That's his desire. He wants a relationship with each and every one of us. And, and, and he wants us to find our strength in him, not in ourselves. And time and time again, he reminds us of this. He reminds us that we are not alone. We're going to go through some verses here real quick that really, I think, just, just drive home God's desire for us to know this. In Deuteronomy 31, he says, Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. He will not fail you or forsake you. Joshua 1.9, have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. In 2 Chronicles 32, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be dismayed because of the king of Assyria, nor because of all the horde that is with him. For the one with us is greater than the one with him. With him is only an arm of flesh, but with us is the Lord our God to help us fight our battles. But there's more. Isaiah 41.10 it says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. I can go on and on and on. Time and time again, God is telling us, be strong. I'm with you. He's got his hand out saying, don't stand in your own strength because you don't have anything. There's no strength in you. You're going to fall. Come. He says, come. Lean on the creator who loves you more than anything on this earth. This was something I had to learn. And this is something that I remind myself of every day. So what does this all mean? Well, it means that God is with us. And God sent his son to be amongst us. I mean, let's think about it for a minute. Christ, his name is Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God is with us. And his Hebrew name, Jesus, is actually Joshua or Yahshua. means God saves so Jesus is the God who is with us, he is the God who saves us, and he is the God who has promised to never leave us. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, we all know the Great Commission. Go therefore to all nations, make, or go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you, even to the end of the age. God and Christ are the same, and he is right here, right now. The Bible says where two or more are gathered, he is there. He is right here with us. 
And his desire is for, to be near you and for you to be near him. And if you've put your faith in him and the work of his son, bask in the presence of the God who loves you. And if you haven't placed your faith in him, if you're like I was, if you're standing on the outside with nothing but yourself and the things of this world looking for hope, and he has his hand out, and he's calling you to come to him because he wants a relationship with you. He wants a relationship with each and every one of us. But sometimes that means he's going to let us break down. Sometimes that means he's going to let us fall. That way he can bring us back to him. Listen, if we're always on a high, if everything is on a good note and going well, we're going to start thinking it's all on us. And we're going to start turning away from him because we're going to build pride. We're going to lean into ourselves. We're not going to lean into the Father. That's what happened to Israel. And look what he did. He let them go so that he could bring them back. He didn't let them go and forsake them. He brought them back to him. Listen, if you take nothing else away from this message, know that God is not far away and you can find rest in his presence. He's not far away, really. Really, he's not. I know there's times when it can feel like he is, but he's not. He's right here. He's closer than you could ever imagine, and you can find rest in the presence of the... Think about the, the presence of the creator of the universe. How amazing is that? That is the hope that we have now, right here in our very... the daily lives that we go through. But it doesn't end there. Our hope doesn't end right here in the now. And that brings us to the third truth of this passage. And, and, and while there's a lot being said in these final verses, the, it all points to this one powerful, powerful uh, promise that God has given us. And that's that our hope is secure in his future. It's secure in his future, not ours. Our hope comes through Christ and Christ alone. There's no other hope on this earth. Only God knows what the future will bring. I don't. We live in a world where we see in, in tunnel vision, and all we can see is just this little bit that's laid out in front of us. But he can see both the beginning and the end. He knows what's coming. Nothing surprises him. And God wanted the exiles to understand this. And so he encourages them that while this first temple, this first one was great, yes, it was, it, 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 there was something greater to come. There was going to be a greater temple. And in those last six to nine verses, he, he tells them that there was going to be wealth pouring in and from all these nations, and it was going to be so much more than the previous one. And what he did was he gave them hope that while this foundation may look small and may look weak, that there was going to be something so much greater than their minds could even imagine. And I'm sure that that, that, that kind of kind of blew their minds. Because you got to think about what this first temple looked like. You know, God's saying it's going to be better than the first. It, it was a sight to behold. If we read through it and we see what's going on, we see that it was filled with enormous amounts of, of gold and silver and bronze and ivory. See, just all these amazing things. And I'm sure they're thinking, man, how can it be greater than that? And, and because I'm the kind of guy that I need tangible proof of stuff, that's part of what took me so long to come to faith was I was looking for that tangible piece to grab a hold of. I, I ran the numbers to see what the value of the temple would be in today's money. Uh, so in First Chronicles, there's some great numbers. I just pulled the gold and silver out. And just for the gold and silver alone, it would be $258 billion with a B. And that's just the gold and silver. That's not counting the land. That's not counting the labor. It's not counting the food to feed them. It's not counting uh, the material or any of the other things that are in there. So we can easily and conservatively estimate half a trillion to a trillion dollars for one building. That's God. No other way by God. It's nothing we can do on our own. 
But despite how awesome this first temple was, God tells them, don't worry about the gold and silver. It was his anyway. Don't worry about that. He tells them there was something greater coming. But I'm sure they didn't understand what that meant. Now, what they did end up seeing was God did provide. He did provide for the new temple. When again, Darius, who had released them, the king of Babylon, he issued a decree that the full cost of the temple would come out of the treasuries that the Babylonians had, had built up, which came from them anyway. So he was just giving them their stuff back, which really probably blew their mind. You, you took us into exile, destroyed our temple, now you want to build it back. And then Herod the Great, he made amazing improvements during the last hundred years of the temple, and, and, and it was a sight to behold. So they probably thought this prophecy was fulfilled as we see the nations come, and neither one of these were Jews, as we see the nations rebuilding this temple. But the only problem was that that temple was destroyed around 70 AD when the Roman army came in and had the siege of Jerusalem. And so if that temple's gone, if this prophecy and this promise of God is gone, where does that leave hope? Where does it leave, where does it leave this prophecy? And that's the key. This prophecy wasn't fulfilled through a building. That prophecy was fulfilled through Jesus Christ. Remember, I said our hope is secure in his future, not ours. It's not the things of this world. These things of this world, the buildings, the, the, the land, everything, it will crumble and fall away. And we see this daily through the changing of seasons, destruction, death. But Christ, Christ is eternal. Hebrews 13, 8 says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He can't be destroyed. He's already defeated death. He can't fall away. He will not crumble. He will rule forever. He is the capital T temple. And in his humanity was all the temple had foreshadowed and foretold. Through his sacrifice, there is peace. Peace between sinful men and a holy and perfect God through their faith. Through his blood, sins are washed away, and there is eternal life. Through the promise of his return, there is hope. He has defeated death, he has conquered the grave, and he's brought forth greater riches than could ever grace the walls of some building. And where the second temple had brought hope to the Jews, had brought hope into the Israelites, Christ brings hope to the whole world. Paul reminds us that through Christ, we can put on a new self that is renewed according to the image of Christ. And then he says in Colossians, a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and is in all. Christ is our hope. And we can go into detail about how the, the shaking of the heavens and the earth, that it's there, how that can be seen in Revelation 16, and, and we can try to, to piece that together. But the focus is that our hope for the future is seen in the second coming of Christ. He will return. He will make the world new. He will eliminate all tears, all death, all pain. And those that are his will rest in his presence for all eternity. In Revelations 21, 7, it says, He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is why our hope is secure in his future. This promise of his return is why the people in Ukraine are still standing firm in faith in their churches. It's why they are still singing hymns that praise him in the midst of a war. Their hope is not in the now it's in what's still to come. He has promised this to us, 
And God, he is a promise maker. God is a promise keeper. This hope is what Christ, the Christ, those Christians over there are standing on right now. And it's what we can stand on right here. And it's this right here. It's that eternal hope is in the already, but not yet. Our eternal hope, the hope for tomorrow, it's in the already, but not yet. Not until he returns. This hope is in the kingdom that he will usher in the new Jerusalem, the new world, when all brokenness and all sin is gone. But until he returns, we are left standing in a world that can seem hopeless. But it doesn't have to. I don't think that there could be anything more hopeless than over there in Ukraine right now, and it's just been weighing on me this week. They're there in the midst of a war machine that can outgun them, marching in, and the rest of the world is sitting back and watching. But we see time and time again that they have hope because of the gospel. They are standing in these churches and they are praying as you hear gunfire outside. They are singing songs to praise the risen king as the world is falling apart outside because their hope lies in what is to come, not in what is falling down around them. We are called to share the gospel. That's where this comes. They have hope because of the gospel. We are called to share it because it brings hope to the hopeless. Back in 2019, started my path up here. I came up with the seminary uh, on a study tour to New England. And while we were up here, we spent some time through all the states. But I finished out in Boston for three days. And while I was there, I was down waiting for the tea uh, underneath the uh, main park in Boston. And this gentleman, probably around 50, comes up, homeless gentleman, and he's asking me for money. And I don't give money to the homeless. I'll buy them food. I'll buy them clothes. I'll provide something they need, but I don't just give money to them. So I said, hey, I don't have money. But what I do have is I have, uh, I have some good news that I can share with you. And so we spent the next 40 minutes as I shared the hope that Christ had, had given into my life and what he'd poured into me and where I'd come from. And, and he's asking me questions about, you know, the problems he's done, the mistakes he's made, and, and how can he have this kind of hope. And, and his tears are rolling down his face. He prays for Christ, and that's awesome. And, man, praise God over it. But what stuck with me more, and it's what really weighed on me is to come up here, is he asked me, he said, how come nobody has ever told me this before? That hurt. How come nobody has ever told him that before? Because I had been there. But now, because somebody had shared with him, because now someone had told him the good news of the gospel, he has hope. He has hope that, that he can be forgiven for all the wrongs that he has done in his life. And he has hope that even though things may not be good now, that there's a promise for something better to come. Hope comes from knowing that God is always with you. And through Christ, you can have all your sin and shame washed away. And you can be given eternal life. So how can we put these truths into action in our lives today? As, as we look to the hope that God spoke to the Israelites and the hope that he has given to us, what can we do this week and, 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 and every week to connect more, to, 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 to grasp a hold of it and to stand firm in it? When we know that our hope is not in our past, but in his presence, in our present, and in his future, what we can do is we can rest in this life. Now, I'm not saying we don't have to do anything. Don't think this is a, an, an excuse to, to not go out and evangelize and share the gospel with your neighbors and your family and your coworkers and, and people around you. No, you need to keep doing that because there are souls at stake, and they need to hear the good news of the gospel. But what this does is when we rest in that hope, life becomes a lot less of a burden to bear because we can trust that God is with us, and no matter what happens now, he will be glorified in the days to come. 
what would it look like to have that peace of mind always? To have that peace of mind that that gentleman had as he left, knowing that there's a hope for tomorrow. How do we, how do we get that? How do we rest in that hope? And how do we gain that assurance of what God has promised us? It's really, it's quite simple. Commit to meeting God where he is. That's what brought us up here. We committed to meeting God where he was. These exiles, they were worried about the size and the beauty of this building when what God really wanted from them was for them to commit to being present with him. He didn't want the temple rebuilt because he needed a place to get in out of the rain. He wanted them to build it so that they would redirect their focus away from themselves and they would redirect it back to him. Do you want to find more hope in a world that seems hopeless? Spend more time with the one who brings true hope, Jesus Christ. And I mean true undisturbed time, not just saying grace before your meals or a quick morning devotional. Don't get me wrong, those are great and we should be doing them. But, but truly commit to being present with the one who is your source of strength. When we are with him and plugged into his word, we are filled with his love and with his strength and his hope. Look, I hope you don't go out to dinner with your spouse and then just sit there and look at their Facebook page instead of being present with them. Be present with God. When we trust him and know that his love for us is so great that he is always there, even in the times when we feel so alone, we no longer have to fear this world. Again, look at, look at I keep going back, look at these Christians in Ukraine. Their identity is not in the moments of fear, but it's in the Prince of Peace, and ours can be too. Knowing that Christ will return one day eases the pain that we witness daily on the news. As a matter of fact, if you want some good news, turn your TV off and open your Bibles. Hope flows out from God when we are in his word, and it comes into us. And then it flows from us, and it goes into others. Remember, hope is Emmanuel, God with us. And it's also Jesus, Joshua, Joshua, God saves. There is hope being offered by the Father for each and every one of us. And if you put your faith in Christ, you have that eternal hope. But perhaps this is the first time you've heard this. Perhaps nobody, like that gentleman down the subway, nobody has ever shared with you what that good hope is. Well, today, that is my, my main key, is I want to share with you what the good news is. And that good news is that God created each and every one of you on purpose and for a great purpose. And that's to have a relationship with him. But unfortunately, because of sin, sin that entered the world through Adam and has progressed from the first man through all generations to right now and into me and my family and each and every one of us, we have been separated from the Father. But God in all his wisdom saw our greatest need, and that was for a Savior. And so at just the right time in history, he sent down his one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be born of a virgin and to walk in the flesh. Jesus lived a sinless life, and he obediently went to the cross where he bore the wrath for your sins and mine. And he died, and he was buried, and he arose on the third day, proving he was who he says he was, and he can do what he says he can do. And the Bible tells us that we believe in our heart that Jesus is Lord and profess with our mouth that God rose from the dead. We, too, can be saved. There is hope in a world that seems hopeless, and it comes through Christ. And God wants a relationship with you. And we don't know what tomorrow will bring, but we know that there will be something beyond this. And he wants to save you from that. God is offering you an out. Do you want to stand there in your own works, and your own burdens, and your own sin and shame? Or do you want to hand it over to Christ? Do you want to give it to him who's saying, give me your burden, son, and take my righteousness? And he hands you that righteousness. And when God looks on you, he no longer sees you the sinner. He sees this blood of his son washed over you, holy and perfect.
There's no better time than right now to put your faith in Christ. As we see a world that looks hopeless and falling apart, hand it over to the one who brings true hope. You can do it right there where you're sitting. You can just say a prayer in your heart. Ask Christ to come in, forgive you of your sins. And if you do, man, I encourage you. Come speak with me, with one of the other elders here. Tell the person sitting beside you. Man, so we can, we can praise and welcome you into the family. The Bible tells us that the angels sing greater for one sinner that is saved than for a hundred righteous men. Today is the day. Reach out and take this hope that God is giving to you. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I thank you that our hope is found in you. Lord, in a world that seems to be falling down, a world that is filled with pain and suffering, destruction, a world where men seek self over others, Father, it can be easy for us to, to lose sight on the, the promises that you have made. And so, Lord, I pray today that you will speak into each one of us Lord, I pray that you will make your presence evident. Father, I pray today that we can rest in the hope of, of eternal salvation. We can rest in the hope of, of a future that will be free of pain, a future where there will be no more tears, no more lies, no more death. Father, I pray today is the day that we submit ourselves to the promise of, of a brighter day. We submit ourselves to the one who paid the price for us. I pray today that we can rest in your presence, that we can look to you for all our hope. For, Father, there is nothing within us. So, Father, I pray that you will be over the people in Ukraine, Father, as they are struggling, as they are enduring the wrath of, of man. Father, let them rest in the promises that you have given to them, knowing that, that there will be better days to come that you have already saved them, that we are temporary here, but there is eternal glory waiting for those who put their faith in Christ. So, Father, we love you. We are thankful for all you have done. Lord Jesus, thank you for the work you did for each and every one of us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and respond.